Section 18 of On the Witness Stand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On the Witness Stand. Essays on Psychology and Crime by Hugo Munsterberg. The Prevention of Crime. Part 1. A few weeks ago, there stumbled into my laboratory a most pitiable human wreck. I saw at the first glance how morphine had devastated the frame of a man in his best years, and trembling and with rolling eyes he confessed that he was using thirty grains of the destructive poison every day. He could neither eat nor sleep. He had not worked for years. He had left wife and child. It was a gruesome story of heart-rending misery. They had sent him to asylum in vain. He remained the slave of his passion, and everyone treated him with contempt and disgust. Slowly I drew out his whole tragedy from the beginning. He had been successful in life and hard at work. Then he had had an accident and had been brought into a southern hospital. There the surgeons gave him morphine every evening to secure a restful night, just a little shot of an eighth of a grain. When he left the hospital his hip was healed, but the poor fellow could not sleep without the drug and from day to day the dose had to be increased. He was a morphinist, an outcast, without energy and without hope. For weeks I have been fighting his passion with persistent suggestive treatment, and the dose he needs has now been reduced to the hundredth part, and his old strength and enjoyment of life have slowly come back. He will be cured soon. But every day when I put my full energy to the task— I have to think of the cruelty with which society has treated him. He was not born a dope fiend. He did not choose the poison. Organized society injected it into his system, a small dose only, but enough to make the craving for it irresistible. And when it had grown to ruin his proportions, society was ready to despise and to condemn him. Even in the best case, it could only make heroic efforts to overcome the gigantic passion which it had recklessly raised. To me, this diseased passion is a symbol of all the crime that fills the countries of the globe. No man is born a criminal, but society gives him, without his will, the ruinous injection. Of course, a small dose only, a shot of an eighth of a grain, and despises him if the injected instinct grows and grows, and when it has destroyed the whole man, then society goes heroically to work with police and court and punishment. It is nearly always too late. To prevent that first reckless injection would have been better than all the labor of the penitentiaries. At last this conviction is making its way everywhere. Prevention of a crime is more important than treatment of a crime. It is claimed that this country spends annually $500 million more on fighting the existing crime than on all its works of charity, education, and religion. The feeling is at last growing that a fraction of that expense and energy would be ample for providing that such a quantity of habitual crimes should not come to existence at all. For such a result, however, it is essential that all social factors cooperate in harmony and that no science which may contribute to this tremendous problem hold back. It is evident that it is the duty of modern experimental psychology to give its serious attention to such thoughts, and a psychologist may therefore ask for a hearing. He has, perhaps, little to contribute, 
as only in very recent days has the psychological laboratory come into connection with the world of crime. But that little is the more needed to awake interest for this too-much-neglected aspect of the case. Public opinion, to be sure, today leans toward calling the psychologist as witness for a very different purpose. The psychologist is to disburden society of its responsibility for the growth of crime, inasmuch as he is called to testify that the criminal is born as such. Reminiscences of Lombroso's interesting theories and of his whole school fill the air. It seems a dogma that the true scientist must accept the type of the born criminal along with other human abnormalities which are beyond our social making and unmaking, like the epileptic, or, on the sunny side of society, the musical genius. But in such a form, the doctrine is certainly misleading and distorted, and the psychologist must refuse to furnish evidence. No one will deny the importance of those Italian inquiries, which were quickly amplified by the researchers of all countries. It was of the highest value to study the bodily and mental characteristics of the inmates of our prisons, to gather anthropological and sociological data of their misshapen ears or palates, of their tattooing and their slang, and finally to make psychological experiments as to their sensitiveness and their emotions. But no result justifies the claim that criminals are born as such. The accusation against society stands, after Lombroso, firmer than before. Society has not done its duty. From the outset, we must not forget that from a psychological point of view, it is utterly vague to speak of a criminal disposition, as if such a term stood for a unified mental state. In the old days of reckless phrenology, it seemed so simple to talk of the sense for architecture, or the sense for morality, and in the same way of the absence of such sense, as if really one elementary function only were involved. All that was necessary for the old phrenologist, because it was his belief that he was able to recognize the development of mental functions, like love of music or criminality, from the development of certain bumps on the skull. And for that purpose, it was again necessary to presuppose that such mental traits were located in one single corner of the brain. Today, we know that such faculties are the outcome of hundreds of thousands of processes which are going on in perhaps millions of brain parts. We may seek the localized seat for simple tone sensations or simple color sensations, but not for a whole perception of a thing, and infinitely less for such complex states, built up from ideas, emotions, and volitions. How does the average man succeed in living an honest life? Impressions and thoughts carry to his mind numberless ideas, which awake feelings of pleasure and displeasure. The pleasurable idea stirs up the desire and the impulse to realize it in action, and the disagreeable idea awakens the impulse to get rid of the displeasing source. There is no further will act necessary. The idea of the end itself presses the brain button and makes us act. We approach the attractive and escape the painful by the mere power of the ideas. The whole development of life, from the first sucking for sweet milk, is possible only through this mechanism. But from the beginning, life complicates this process. The tempting idea of the end to be reached awakes before the action sets in. Some counter-idea, 
perhaps the thought of dangerous results. We desire the fruit, but we know it is poisonous, and the idea of poisoning works in the opposite direction. The attractive impression gives the impulse to extend the arm, and the thought of danger gives the counter-impulse to withdraw the arm. The one tends to inhibit the other. The more vivid idea overpowers the weaker one. We do not grasp for the poisonous fruit because the danger holds us back. Such counter-idea, which associates itself with the idea of the end, may be of social character. The expectation of punishment or of contempt may work as such a check, and yet the mechanism of the process is just the same. It is again a balancing of opposing forces. And finally, instead of such social ideas, there may stand on the other side a religious habit or an ethical ideal, which may become effective where no social fear is involved. But the principle remains always the same. The struggle of ideas controls the resulting action. There is no good or bad, wise or foolish actor behind those ideas to pick out the favored one. But the ideas in their variety of vividness and feeling tone with their attached impulses are themselves the working of the personality, and their striving determines the result. A life may be honest or at least decent if the tempting ideas of socially forbidden ends are inhibited and overpowered by opposing considerations, ideas of punishment and harm or of religious fear. On a higher level, we may demand that it shall be the idea of moral dignity which checks the forbidden impulse. But the essential point remains that the non-criminal, the correct life, is always the result of a complex interplay between ideas and counter-ideas, with the result that the thought of some unpleasant consequence inhibits the desire. The mechanism of the process is therefore not different from the case where the idea of bodily harm prevents us from doing a reckless or dangerous thing. And in this way, the psychologist cannot acknowledge a special function of non-criminal behavior. It overlaps and practically coincides with the reasonable, cautious way of living in every other respect. By the smallest possible steps, every man's adjustment to his environment leads from the avoidance of bodily risks to the avoidance of social risks, and thus to non-criminal habits. There is nowhere a sharp demarcation line. The one who is instinctively overmuch afraid of being found out in wrongdoing will live a faultless life from the standpoint of law, just as truly as his neighbor who obeys the laws from a moral conviction. It is impossible to bring criminality, from a psychological viewpoint, down to one formula. The normal decent life thus demands that an idea which by its feeling tone stimulates to a forbidden action shall awake. At the same time, the counter-ideas which stimulate to the inhibition of the action, and that these opposing ideas shall remain victorious. It is evident that crime may thus result from most different reasons. Those social counter-ideas may not have been learned, or they may not come quickly enough to consciousness, or they may be too faint. Or on the other hand, the original ideas with their desires may be too intense, or their emotions may be too vehement, or the mechanism of inhibition may not be working normally. In short, a defect or an abnormality in any part 
of the complex process may lead to a conflict with the law. And yet, how different the mind in which the impulses are too strong from that in which the opposing ideas are too faint, and that in which the inhibition does not work precisely. And where is to be the point at which the defect becomes abnormal? The temperament, with strong impulses, may remain still quite well-behaved if the checking ideas are unusually strong too, and the faint checks may be harmless if the desires are still weaker. Moreover, it is clear that none of these defects works in the direction of crime alone. The brain in which such counter-ideas are too slowly associated has no special trouble in the line of legal consequence alone. It is a general deficiency. All the ideas come slowly. The mental vision is narrow. The man is stupid and mentally lazy. On the other hand, the brain in which the opposing ideas are unable to produce inhibition must do the reckless thing everywhere. He runs risks and does not care. And the brain in which the impulses are overstrong will again show its emotional lack of balance in every field. In short, there are minds which are born slow or stupid or brutal or excitable or lazy or quaint or reckless or dull. And in every one of such minds, a certain chance for crime is given. But to be born with a mind which by its special stupidity or carelessness or vehemence gives to crime an easier foothold than the average mind certainly does not mean to be born a criminal. The world is full of badly balanced or badly associating persons. We cannot deny that nature provided them poorly in the struggle for social existence. They are less fit than others, but their ending within prison walls is only one of the many dangers which life has in store for them. The same unfit apparatus may make them unable to gain a position, or to have friends, or to protect themselves against disease. In short, it is not criminals that are born but men with poorly working minds. And yet who will say where a mind is just of the right kind? No brain works perfectly. What intelligence and what temperament would be ideal? All the world is peculiar. It is thus only a question of relative amount. Just this, indeed, is the situation which the psychologist finds. Of course, if we turn to the professional criminal who has become a specialist at safe-blowing, or at sneak-thieving, or at check-forging, or burglary, and who has been shaped by long years in the penitentiaries, we find specimens of minds which are very different from the normal average, but those are the differences of training. They have become indeed almost unable to avoid crimes. They have to go on in their career, but it was not their inborn disposition that forced them to burglary. If we abstract from the effect of such life training in the social underworld, and from the traces of poor education, of bad example, of disease and neglect, we find among the criminals the same type of mind as in other spheres, only with a great percentage of all kinds of mental inferiority, stupid and narrow minds, vehement and passionate minds, minds with weak power of comprehension, and minds with ineffective power of inhibition, minds without normal emotions, and minds without energy for work. End of section 18.